Welcome, welcome, welcome to Nintendo Watcher Podcast. I'm Justin, joined as always by my co-host, Matthew. Matthew, how's it going? Hey, Justin. Not too bad, not too bad. Ready to have a little chat. How about you? How have you been holding up? Pretty good. We, I, I think we've both been a little busy lately with uh, a certain game. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff going on. Not enough time to talk. Too many uh, game to play. <laughs> I know you spent a lot more time with this game that we're about to talk about than I did. So I'm interested in, in hearing just that perspective too. You are probably much more of a completionist than me. But of course, we're talking about the one, the only Xenoblade Chronicles Three. Yeah, a game we've both been you know really excited for. Uh, you recently replaying the first two to prepare for it. Me having you know played both of them when they came out. Um, yeah, I you know real excited to hear your thoughts on it now that you've completed the the you know the cycle. Um, I know that we probably had some differing opinions on a few things with this this third entry, but I think we came you know came out of it on the other side pretty pretty even, uh, all things considered. Yeah, I think so. So uh, just broad strokes, we'll get into details here. And let me just say the first half of the conversation will be spoiler free. And then we'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk uh, more story bits. So this first half, totally safe if you haven't played it or you haven't finished it yet. So what did you think just broad strokes about um, this third entry and this really multi-decade series now? Yeah, I, I, if I had to, you know, narrow it down to just like a single sentence, it would be um, uh, the most refined the the premise has been uh, in the entire series. Um, that's kind of what sticks out to me. It, it, you know, does a lot that the other games did, um, but it does all of it better, in my opinion. I don't know. What about you? Where, where did you land on overall impressions? Similarly, I, I'm actually working on a piece about this right now. I think. You're exactly right. Xenoblade 3 is the most approachable game in the series. It does so many things. Um, like, it doesn't reinvent anything, but it does so many things that the older games did so much better. It's mm-hmm. it's really a joy to play, especially, like you said, I, I just um, came off playing those first two, replaying those first two games. And this one just felt like they took all of the small things that you know frustrated you about that game and if they didn't totally fix them they made them so much better yeah absolutely absolutely um i mean yeah all in all i'd say that um you know this is the most xenoblade xenoblade has ever been um you know it really does a lot of stuff that monolith soft um and the creative team behind this you know series and you know the previous xeno series have wanted to do for a long time and i thought it's largely successful you know i have some nitpicks here and there a few things that irked me about the game but overall um i don't regret the time that i spent with it which uh, at you know credits was approximately 132 hours i believe i think mine was closer to 65 or 66 and that was longer than i thought i was going to spend with it um you know right. I, the beginning of the game, I, I felt like I was going through it really fast, and I thought, "Man, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna really get through this so fast. I want to stop and enjoy it and do some of these side missions and stuff." But um, some of those later chapters get a little chunky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, uh, in thinking about how it's similar to the other two Xenoblade games, um, and like like how it 
um, improves on them. Let's let's get into some of the actual gameplay mechanics. Um, the first thing I want to talk about was the just how combat works in this game. Really similar to the previous games in that it's it's you know that kind of strange MMO like um, auto attack, and then you're you're um, basically waiting for your arts to recharge and positioning your character in the right spot. What did you think about the overall combat of this game? Even though it's so similar to the others, it, I think it really stands out. So we talked a little bit about this on our, our Xenoblade Chronicles kind of retrospective a, a few weeks back where, you know, both of the games kind of take a slightly different approach to that um, auto attack and cooldown based system, right? In the, in the first game, I believe it's um, uh, all the moves are on timers, so they recharge on timers. In the second, it's based off of hits, right? Every time you land an auto attack, your, your abilities recharge a little bit until they're ready to use again. Um, and looking at the early trailers for three um it's clear that they they pulled both combat systems into this third game and um i thought it was going to be something of a mess uh the way that the ui just is overly cluttered during combat there's you know lights flashing everywhere buttons you know activating and uh, going dark constantly um it seemed like a, a whole lot of visual chaos um and i wasn't sure i was going to enjoy it but um you know, the early hours of the game just were kind of reminded me how much I don't super care for the first Xenoblade Chronicles combat system. Um, everything feels just like a little too slow, and it's not till you kind of layer on a bunch of additional systems towards the latter half of that game where the combat even becomes, you know, somewhat enjoyable, but never really something I cared greatly about. Um, and in this game, what they do is, you know, about, what, four hours in, right? You you end up unlocking a second set of moves. Um, so you have two, you know, uh, essentially uh, D-pads worth of abilities that you can use. Some of them recharging on hits, some recharging over time. And it creates this nice rhythm to combat where, um, you know, something's coming off cooldown, you know, every couple of seconds or so. There's very little, you know, passive time once you've unlocked, you know, all of your abilities. Um, it brings together, you know, uh, some new systems that allows you to, you know, chain moves from both sets together to create stronger abilities with new effects, um, brings chain arts back in a way that I think is pretty well handled. Um, I mean, you know, overall, I think I, I came away pleased with this combat system, at least compared to, um, one and, and in, many ways it improves upon the combat system too which i already thought was pretty great i mean what about you did you enjoy it did you find it a little too slow i mean a lot of people i've talked to about this game found you know the combat to be a little clunky even still but um you know i think as you get a little further in that that changes up quite a bit yeah no, i agree i think especially after you start unlocking um hero classes and some of the um arts associated with certain heroes um, you can really build your characters kind of how you want them to be. And I, I think that's a really unique part of this and a unique part of the combat system. Mm-hmm. Um, like you, I really enjoyed Xenoblade 2's combat better than the first one. It just feels snappier. Um, it feels like you're, you're more engaged. So it's nice to have a little bit of that, even if you're playing with a character who traditionally has a, a more um, Xenoblade 1 um, combat system and, and cooling system for their arts. 
I did feel like with two D pads worth of arts at some points in the game, I was just waiting for an art to, to charge up. Like there wasn't, it didn't feel like my moves were as strategic in this game as they were. in, in mm-hmm. the other two, just because I had so much, I could throw an art, you know, at, at pretty much every few seconds. And that felt a little button mashy to me after a certain point. This was like sort of late game stuff, though. Yeah. And then, you know, you layer that with the, was it fusion arts, right? Where you use an ability from both sides in conjunction with each other, which helps to charge your Mobius gauge um, or Ouroboros gauge, right? Which mm-hmm. allows you to transform into, you know, your super powered uh, time limited ability, uh, you know, fusion form, if you will, right? Um, and it, yeah, I can see, you know, there, there were moments or at least, you know, sections of the game where it felt like you were just saving up all your cooldowns until everything was ready to go at once, burning it all until you, you know, ranked up your Ouroboros to level three, jumping into, you know, your fusion form and, you know, finishing the fights, right? So, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, if you that's that's one way to play it. and you know probably the most effective way was to go about it in that particular fashion but i think that the game still encourages you to like really play around with builds you know the class system in this game is new to xenoblade and i think done really well um, every character can play every other class and you can mix and match two different roles together or more really with the fusion arts to create some really unique um you know tanks, healers, and damage dealers. Um, you know, you've got some really cool, you know, buffers, debuffers, utility characters, um, really a wide range of options to, to customize it. And, you know, if you're playing the game just with the strongest possible builds, looking to get through combat the fastest way you can, then yeah, it can get pretty boring. But I found myself kind of just ignoring uh, you know, certain overpowered systems to experiment with different builds. And it, it made the combat a little bit more enjoyable for me overall, because I think my big, biggest gripe, and this is a returning gripe from the first two games um, with a, a new wrinkle to it, is that every combat feels like it's just working towards the chain attack. Um, and monster health is so ridiculously out of proportion with the creatures that you're fighting that you know anything short of working to chain attacks and creating a a high you know percentage chain bonus um makes general combat just a slog Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it becomes a little bit repetitive when that's the case you know unless you level up above you know the the threats you're currently facing Fights can take anywhere from, you know, two to six minutes, probably, you know, on average for just a you know random encounter, which I think is a little egregious. Yeah, that's the part that frustrated me so much because they were, you know, they were high level enemies in some sections, but enemies that you would easily beat. And yet you still have to go through the entire like multi minute process and you almost like you almost always had to uh, do the, the chain attacks or you know, get the Ouroboros going to just to finish it. And th- these aren't hard battles. These are just random encounters, um, which are really fun when you first do them. But, you know, they get kind of old whenever you've got, yeah. you know, a dozen enemies and uh, they're they're all they're all uh, aggroed against you or whatever they call it. 
Yeah, I think the game shines in its boss battles for this this reason, right? Like the boss battles require a little bit more strategy, you know, utilizing your positionals, right? Knowing when you need to be behind an enemy to the flank of an enemy, whatever it might be, in order to maximize buffs, debuffs, you know, heals, all of that. And, um, you know, if the game, it feels like the game wants every combat to have that same weight, but most of them just felt like battles of attrition where you're just kind of waiting out the enemy health bar because there's not really a threat of of you being knocked out in those random encounters and i think that's something that the series still needs to you know strike a better balance with understanding that you know the the random you know horse that i run into on the the world map doesn't need to take me as long as uh, you know a mini boss does um it shouldn't be equivalent amount of you know time yeah speaking of bosses and mini bosses for <laughs> a second um it, it this game did the thing that i hate jrpgs um that they do it you absolutely cream a boss or a mini boss <laughs> and then in the cut scene it's like you know you're getting your ass kicked did you notice yeah. that? It did it like 10 yeah. times. This is a this seems to be like a, a Xenoblade trope at this point. I mean, a lot of games do. A lot of anime JRPGs do this, but I think Xenoblade is one of the most egregious with it. Um, uh, another series that is pretty infamous for this is the, the Trails series of JRPGs, mm -hmm. where, you know... Uh, we're supposed to believe that these enemies are, you know, world-ending threats, and yet we finish the the battles with them without losing a single character or dropping health below fifty percent. And yet the cutscene tells us that we were absolutely obliterated for you know five minutes or whatever it was. But yeah, I think uh, tonally there's there's some issues there, especially because you know, and I think you know we can transition a little out of out of combat here and just think about gameplay more generally. This game really encourages you to take your time to explore to side quest to level up beyond the point uh, that you're at in the story um how did you feel about the the kind of approach to you know just moving from one story beat to another did you did you typically beeline from point a to point b or um did you kind of meander around in these you know pretty wide open spaces and and explore you know side content I felt like the first few chapters, I was really just going from point to point, um, hitting all the story beats as they came. And that's when I, I thought, maybe I'm going through this too quickly mm -hmm. and took a step back, started doing some of the, the side missions, which are, I think, handled really well um, for the most part in this game. Yeah. We can talk about that a little bit more, too. But yeah, I, I slowed down a lot, maybe in chapter three, because I felt like I was going through it too quickly and started doing some side missions and just exploring areas, trying to find secret locations. And I became obsessed with uncovering places on the map. You know, like as right. you go, the map um, increasingly gets filled out. And I just became obsessed with like, I wonder what's over there. I can see, you know, there's there's a question mark over there. Maybe I should just try to make it. I don't know if I can get there now or not. Mm -hmm. But that led to me being super over leveled. Um, right. Like almost the entire game, I was about ten levels over uh, yeah. the, the the next boss, and I wasn't really. Um, I don't think, but a, a handful of times, I, pa I like powered up at the at the campsites. Yeah, that's what I was gonna mention. Like the game does a real nice thing. You know, Xenoblade One kind of learned this in the the remaster, right? Like these games tend to 
over level you if you do all of the side content to make you know in in a way that trivializes the main story and um one thing they added is the ability to essentially stock the the bulk of your experience right and then you go to a campsite and you can choose to level up your character's x number of levels right or you can hit one button and just do all of the levels you've stocked up and even without utilizing that function like i went probably at one stretch 30 hours without touching that system and i could not for the life of me catch up to the story right i had gotten so far ahead from doing all of the side quests and unlocking hero classes and you know um you know cleaning up colonies and stuff like that that i could not do enough to catch up to the story without just completely abandoning all of the side content um which is not something I wanted to do because, as you mentioned already, the side content in this game feels, you know, significant in ways that a lot of games just feel, you know, superfluous. Um, I yeah, mean, I think they fleshed out their their um, NPCs really well. Yeah, like, sure, there are a ton of, you know, fetch quests, but most of those are handled in a way that you gather the items and you just turn them in, you know, from wherever you are in the world. Um but every narrative side quest that requires you to talk to somebody, to go meet a new character, to you know visit a location, has some kind of lore significance. Building out the world, these colonies and and you know factions and different characters that you meet throughout the the experience in a way that a lot of games will often just kind of drop you know entirely right you, you get one or two interesting tidbits about a place and then suddenly every fetch quest is just you know helping an individual with a, a problem they're having that is irrelevant to the larger you know uh story that's taking place around them and this game really avoids that uh, in a way that i thought was really well done especially with the hero quests um which you know not to spoil anything but i think the bulk of my playtime was exploring um the hero you know unlocking hero quests and then leveling up colonies just to unlock the the second part of each hero's kind of narrative yeah i was glad they didn't just like throw the hero at you as a, a single side quest and let it be they mm -hmm. really took time to write out um storylines for these heroes i didn't find all the heroes um you know at a certain point i was like i've i'm already over leveled I don't want to do any more side content and get even more over leveled. So I'm just going to barge through it, but I'm going to do a, a second playthrough eventually and try to find everybody because I, I just thought they did such a good job with mm -hmm. not only, um, you know, fleshing out the actual personalities of these um, heroes and their backstories, but also their connection to the main characters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and how that helped um, flesh out the main character story too. I, I thought just that was an awesome way to um, unfold like this, this really complicated story with, you know, six, basically six protagonists. Yeah. And with each of the six protagonists getting pretty much equal, you know, weight throughout the narrative, it's really cool that even these, these, the seventh characters, right. These hero classes, which come with you on the journey, you can have one of them in your party at all times. Um, you know, they get fleshed out in a way that makes them feel you know, as significant as the main characters for their own little 
region, right? Like they're not significant uh, as such to the larger narrative for most of them, um, but they each hold a lot of significance for their own particular, you know, story beat and the people that you interact with during those chapters and moments in the game, which is really cool. You know, it allows you to learn as much or as little about the game as you would like by, you know, revisiting locations, checking in on people you've met along the way in a way that a lot of games don't really encourage or, or, you know, expect you to do. So I thought, you know, overall gameplay wise, you know, this game offers a ton of options for people. Um, but it also kind of, you know, it's, it seems weird to say like a game that's 130 something hours respects the player's time. Um, but I do think that it, really respects the player's time because it allows you to if you want like you you know go through the narrative beat beat by beat without feeling like you've missed anything if you want to slow down and explore some kind of side narratives you know additional lore tidbits you can do that and not feel like um, you're spending hours doing useless side quests to unlock one little nugget of useful information or enjoyable story yeah and just speaking of um general gameplay and and our six main protagonists i was wanting to ask you this question pretty much since since we started playing and talking about doing this this review podcast who did you play as um for the majority of your playtime? i did not play as noah for 80 percent of the time it just felt so natural to, to go between characters yeah i think i mean i jumped around a lot um it in you know i don't think I, I think I traveled most of the time as Noah just because it felt right to do that for, for some reason. Um, but in combat, I, I actually jumped around a lot because I liked to kind of manually control, you know, all of the, the Mobius forms and the chain attack, you know, build up and all of that. So I would jump between characters um, frequently in battles. And so I, I spent a lot of time controlling everybody um, in that way. Um, just to kind of get like a more granular feel for combat. And that made, you know, it a lot of fun for me. But um, in the main narrative stuff, you know, I, I think other than him, I probably played as Uni quite a bit, um, just because she was probably one of my favorite uh, characters in the story. I thought she, um, you know, has a lot of personality and is a pretty fun character to play as. Um, what about you? So you said you jumped around mostly. Did you did you gravitate towards any of the six or or was it kind of an equal share? Yeah, ended up gravitating more towards Uni, and um, I played a little bit as Mio, um, mm -hmm. especially towards the end of the game. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. Noah never really, as a character, never really stuck with me. It, it, he almost felt like a silent protagonist for me at times, even though he you know, definitely wasn't silent. But the other characters actually had more personality, and through, you know, um, through the the side quests and the hero quests, as you start to build out this, these characters, it's like the game wants you to experiment with different players. Like, don't just stick yeah. with Noah, your traditional um, swordsman. Um, yeah. I thought that was really really cool. But before we we move on from gameplay, we should talk about um, how the game handled chain attacks this time around. Much different yeah. than the previous two. And you're really into it, right? I, I liked them a lot for the first, you know, dozen or so hours. And then um, towards the end of the game, though, I found them to be a little bit grating. Um, I love the, the like, mini game that occurs whenever a chain of deck starts, right? Trying to balance the, you know, 
maximum number of players you can use in a given turn to get the highest possible percentage without screwing yourself on the next round, right? You know, it's mm -hmm. a, it's a, if you've not played the game, the chain attacks allow you to go through, essentially you have character portraits of all your party members. They have a, a value assigned to them. And your goal is to push that value as high above 100% uh, as you can. There's a couple ways you can do that, right? You know, if you use a healer, right, you know, as you're getting towards 100%, it'll cap it at 99%, and then you can choose your highest rated character to push that number even, you know, higher up to 150, 200, all the way up to, I think the highest I got was um, 298 um, in in one round, right? Yeah. And uh, you, can, you can really get kind of wild with that. And each of the hero classes gives you kind of a different way to spend characters and, you know, build uh, points to your chain attacks. Um, and so I thought that was really cool, but a single chain attack might take uh, three minutes just to get through the whole, you know, if you do well to get through the whole animation. Um, yeah, and you're and trying so to make it as long as possible. Right. And if you're doing that every fight, sometimes multiple times in a fight for, you know, some boss battles, um, it can be a little bit tiring. And it, like I said, it just plays into that issue I was talking about earlier um, of combat feeling a little overlong at times. What about the Ouroboros? I was kind of disappointed using the Ouroboros in normal battles, but I thought they were cool as part of the combo mm -hmm. um, piece. Well, why don't you say more about that? Why? What What was it that you found disappointing about them? Because I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on that. I think it was, it was mainly from um, feeling like it was a little disconnected from the story. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're fighting Mobius and they feel really powerful. Like when they hit you, it, it, it feels like there's a lot of weight behind it. <clears throat> and then when you're in your Ouroboros form, you don't do the kind of damage that I was thinking you would. And I get there's like a skill tree associated with uh, Ouroboros. Yeah. And you fill that out as you go. Okay, cool. Um, but I just thought they were a little underpowered. And mm -hmm. if they would have been a little more powerful, I think it would have helped break up some of the normal, um, not random encounters, but those those encounters on the field with these non-boss enemies. It just felt like mm -hmm. like even their their normal attacks took forever. The auto attacks were slow. Yeah. The um, the arts. I didn't think the arts were that great for the Ouroboros. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I was just I, like underwhelmed. I'd say that. Like I shared all those opinions until about you know, you know I think there's what seven seven chapters or something. Yeah, until like around chapter five, right, is when I finally kind of had a turn on them, and that was because, um, you know, all the additional content I did, I I racked up quite a few additional points for the skill tree, um, and once you get you know, um, canceling for your Ouroboros form, you know, move canceling for the Ouroboros form, it speeds up quite a bit. And, and that's way down the skill tree for most of them. Yeah, I rushed it in most of mine. It rushed straight to that, and it really does make it feel better. And then you get some additional moves that you can slot in, um, and eventually you can steal two abilities, like two power-ups from your companion to uh, make yourself even stronger. And at that point, by the end of the game, you know, I could go into a you know rare mob encounter, level up to level three, and pretty much solo, you know, those those mini bosses with you know one level three, uh, Ouroboros character. Um, hmm. But I will say that um, 
they are not all equal. I think only the Noah and Mio is a really enjoyable form to control. Um, everything feels really, really slow with Uni and uh, uh, Tyon. Um, I think uh, Lands and Senna also feel a little bit clunky to use and take a little bit too much time. So it really is um, underwhelming, like you said. Narrative-wise, I thought it was you know really compelling and enjoyed the, the role, but um, in actual gameplay, I do think that there's room for improvement there. Yeah. Okay, let's... Um, yeah, before, before we move on, because um, you asked who you controlled the most. I'm curious, what did you gravitate towards certain roles in combat? Because the class system in this game is one of the most compelling parts of the, the gameplay. Um, we haven't really said much about it other than, you know, surface level. And so I'm curious, did you gravitate towards attackers, defenders, or healers by any chance? Yeah, actually I did. I, most of the time I played as an attacker. I, I feel like that's like the, the default, yeah. right? Um, mm -hmm. But... I was surprised that a lot of times I played as a healer. Healers yeah. in these games always suck, yep. but oh, there were actually some. Good, there were actually some pretty good healers here. Yeah, and I actually found myself almost exclusively playing healers in the back half of the game, um, because some of the later hero classes you unlock have like really good buff abilities that allow you to you know stack huge bonuses for all of your characters, and you'll find that you know the NPCs don't do a really good job of that they hold on to stuff for too long they don't use their abilities correctly they never build enough gauge and so i found that putting the you know, autopilot on the tanks and dps led to way more successful <laughs> uh, you know experience throughout the rest of the game yeah actually if i was manning the healer yeah i totally agree with you they spend way too much time just holding things back when when um it's just ai um ai healers but I just remembered um, when you asked me that question, I actually did play as one defender. Um, sort of <laughs> late game, Uni gets a really, really, really good defender class mm -hmm. that's that feels more like an attacker class. Yeah. Um, but I thought all of the other defenders were kind of boring, um, you know, just, just like bullet sponges. Right. But I like how the healer classes, um, and, and even the attackers um, to a certain degree, like how their um, buffs and debuffs worked with the, the giant circle on the mm -hmm. ground so if you're standing you know in overlapping circles you can really stack your your buffs um, pretty yeah. significantly and i thought that as the healer class i was able to spread those around the battlefield better mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um sort of empower the other ai to to be better yeah so I know we've gone long on combat but one final question then we can move on to the next bit which is um the auto battle system. I think it's important to note that this game has an auto battle system. You can set everything except for elites and bosses to just do it for you. Did you use that system quite a bit? Uh, yeah, I, I forgot about that. Um, I did use it um, kind of late game. Again, when <laughs> I was um, playing those those normal battles where I knew I was going to win, um, but the dog needed to go out. So I just yeah. put it on auto attack and, and walked away or went and got a drink and walked away. I, I don't like doing that. I, I hate the auto attack features and uh, RPGs, but it took so long. It's like, I'm not going to sit yeah. here and, and do this whole thing and I'll just leave it and come back. What about you? I found myself using it a lot late game um, and I didn't feel 
I didn't feel bad about it. I had put in the hours. I'd, I'd done it enough that it was, you know, it, it, it was a good system to make the monotony of these long battles feel less monotonous, um, which, you know, maybe isn't um, glowing praise, but um, at least they recognized, right, the need for a system like that. What difficulty did you play on? I played on normal and I bumped it up towards hard uh, to hard towards the end just to, um, you know, since I had over leveled so much, I, I wanted it to be a little more in line at the end. So I bumped it up to hard. I played on normal the whole time. Did you feel a discernible difference between normal Not and hard? Not significantly, um, but I think that's because I waited so late to, to bump it. Yeah, might be good for a second playthrough when you have yeah. another 150 that's, hours. That's my plan, yeah. If I if I revisit this when the Xenoblade 4 comes out, I'll uh, you know consider hard the whole way. All right, let's move on to something I know you're excited about, the uh, music and overall sound design of this game. Yeah. What, what do you think? So um, I've, I've on record as saying my favorite composer is Yasunori Mitsuda. He's my favorite video game composer, and he is the lead on this particular game. Um, this game is exceptional. Um, it's one of his best works. In fact, um, the, the soundtrack in this game, I can't think of a track that I didn't at least enjoy, um, and most of them I... I really really loved um there are a significant number of unique battle themes um some really cool you know light motifs that run through different um you know tracks that you know really you know heighten the emotional impact of certain moments in the story he's always been really good at um you know layering tracks together in a way that that you know evolves the the soundscape as the the game progresses and in fact um you know I think we're probably going to, you know, we'll see if this works, right? But there's a there's a track um, that was uh, released alongside, uh, you know, one of, the, I think, the Volume 5 trailer for this game when it came out. And it only shows up twice in the actual game when you're fighting members of Mobius. Um, but it's one of the most intense songs uh on the soundtrack and it only comes in twice um not even in really story critical moments during the game but it pulls not only you know the like some of the the heaviest emotional weight for me on the soundtrack but it also draws from um motifs from two of the most popular uh, tracks in the Xenoblade uh, canon, which is um, Counterattack from Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which if you've played that game, um, go listen to that song, you'll know it when you hear it, and then Engage the Enemy from the first Xenoblade Chronicles. And these are two of the most popular um, tracks on any of the soundtracks. And um, in, in, this, in the version that we get here called The Weight of Life, uh, Masuda brought in uh, some motifs from those games at various points in a way that I think is really cool because the battles in which you hear this song are ones that have a, a pretty heavy story bearing on the relationship between um, the two warring nations, right? Um, and so the fact that it pulls from both Xenoblade Chronicles 1 and Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is really cool. And there's a lot of songs on the track that do this, but um, I kind of wanted to see if we could play just like maybe 20, 30 seconds of this. And it's uh, about three minutes and 20 seconds into the weight of life. And this is the part where it actually you know, pulls motifs from uh, Engage the Enemy on the first Xenoblade Chronicles. <laughs> 
So, you know, that that song is by far, you know, one of the best on the on the soundtrack, and yet it is a kind of you know throwaway track in a lot of ways. You know, that level of quality, you know, is throughout the entire soundtrack, and it it kind of brings me to my my next point, and then you know I want to hear your thoughts on the soundtrack and the sound design, but we're kind of talking about these two in conjunction with each other. And one of the things that drove me absolutely up a wall with this game, I know were what you're going to say. Incessant voice lines in this, in, in this game. I mean, ruins some of the amazing emotional moments. With you mean like this one? Hear that Noah. Lance wants something a bit meatier. <laughs> yeah. Um, and all of the other, you know, 50,000, uh, voice lines that repeat, uh, ad nauseum throughout the entirety of the game. I mean, I, I heard Senna explain that she was the girl with the gall uh, 365 times, uh, you know, in an hour, most, uh, most sessions. It was, it was unbearable. And they talk nonstop during combat, um, right over all of the music. It makes it very difficult to actually enjoy some of the soundtrack because, uh, you know, I don't know why this game has not, like, how have these games not learned that you need a toggle for in-combat dialogue like there needs to be a toggle for that so that i can either turn it off or make it so it only happens every once and correct me if i'm wrong didn't xenoblade chronicles remaster have a toggle or like the ability to at least adjust the frequency or am i imagining that i don't remember that but it it could be there i looked all over for it it is not in xenoblade chronicles 3 that i could find um but it's a shame because other than that the sound design in this game is really well done. You know, the the combat sounds, the music, it's all it all meshes really well together. It's just those incessant dialogue lines. They 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 detract too much. I yeah, mean, they're and they're not even strictly to combat, uh combat related. Like it was whenever I was playing as Uni and she would kick open um a barrel, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like every single time the same thing over and over or you're meeting somebody new. This was the thing that drove Brooke crazy, my wife. Um Drove Brooke crazy every time I was playing it on the TV and it, uh, I, I was going around the colonies, meeting new people and it had the same line after you talk to a new person. Always nice wow. to see a new face. And, but you're talking to like a dozen people, <laughs> right? It was infuriating. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not great. Not great. That's something they need to, to work on. They need to clean that up for the next one because it's just, it's, like I said, it it doesn't seem like a huge deal until you realize what it's pulling away from or what it's, you know, um, you know, drawing your attention to in moments where your attention should be elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. I agree with everything you said about the the music overall. And I just wanted to make a quick point and then we can we can move on. But for Nintendo games, music has always been really important. Um, mm -hmm. and it's often been like a core part of the game. This game, having two musicians as its its main protagonist, really did did the right job here, um, incorporating their melody into some of the the um, other songs in the game, and yeah. using a lot of flute work or uh, yeah, flute work, um, and just general woodwind instruments. To, mm -hmm. to tie all these songs together. I, I thought that was really, really well done. 
yeah they crafted um you know they they had specific flutes crafted to model the in-game uh flutes for the uh for the soundtrack um you know they 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 had you know specialty flutes built to to get some of the the tones and, and sounds that they got in the game and i thought that was really cool did not know that all right let's take a quick break and when we come back It'll be all spoilers all the time. So talking settings, story, and the connection to the previous scene of Blade Games. I want to go on record and say this is probably my least favorite story of a Xenoblade game so far. Really? Yep. Wow. I don't agree with that. That's interesting. I and That's I really did, interesting. I didn't feel that way until the end, but I thought they were and maybe this will change with the DLC, but I thought you know, the first half of this game when you're, you know, just joining the the war between Kevis and Agnes, I thought that was really tight and felt good. Um, and then you get to the second half of the game and they're just throwing these plot points at you, um, especially with the, the connections to the Queens and the previous two games. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be no explanation. Um, like Xenoblade is known for its lore and the mythos. And it was just like they were just throwing stuff at you and giving no explanations. Um, I thought it was really sloppy in the second half. I don't know, because like I, I understand that like within this game, the you know, we get that that kind of it's it's the only instance of this in the whole game where there's sort of a hand drawn cutscene, right? Where that was weird, we're right? Explained we're being explained the the merging of the two worlds, right? That they were on a collision course with each other and in order to prevent them simply colliding, right, and resulting in the, you know, the loss of both worlds, the two queens worked together to merge them with Origin, right? They created Origin to try to merge the two worlds so that they wouldn't, you know, essentially collide and, and you know, uh, be the end of both, right? What ended up happening was they came together, created the world of uh, Ionius, um, which is the Xenoblade Chronicles 3 uh, universe. and uh, A play on uh, Ionian, it, I think, the, the yeah. musical mode. And then it was, it was hijacked, right, by Mobius, which was this shadowy entity that it's not super clear where they exactly came from, <laughs> but somehow they were present at the forming and were able to hijack the control of origin and uh, thus the world yeah who they are where they came from what they want like it's all very very sloppy yeah i mean we know what they want right they want the endless now right which is a phrase that gets used a lot in the in the you know final act of the the game which again you know why and the justification for it not super clear you know z's um uh reasoning is is left pretty opaque but um you know i think that one thing is you know xenoblade chronicles 2 broaches this in its ending right that that the two worlds are always you know have always been connected have always been pulling towards one they're they were only being held apart um by the creator at the end of you know xenoblade chronicles 2 he was keeping them separate right keeping the two worlds removed from each other 
um, if I recall the ending of Xenoblade Chronicles 2 well, right? Um, yeah. And so I think, I think like, it's it's there. It's just you have to have recalled all of the nuanced story beats from the first two games and the role of, um, you know, the various Z characters that show up in those, those older games, right? Um, yeah, and so. I mean, I was... I was familiar, obviously, just playing through it, familiar with all of that, but I just, maybe I have a bigger problem with the, just the story itself. You know, we, in the teasers and on, on the actual cover, right, we see how these two worlds are coming together. If you played the first one or the second one, you know, oh, that's, that's a Titan on the cover with <laughs> the, um, Mechanis's sword. Looks like it's going through it. Um, it's so like all of that, you, you know, it's going to be the first game and the second game sort of combined. But you're wondering, like, how do they do that? Wonder, you know, how that that comes to be um, just from mm-hmm. a, a mythos perspective. And they're like, oh, well, they just were always connected. So they're coming together. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? It just felt right. it just felt kind of I don't know. It felt like the story was kind of rushed there. And then. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll probably get explored more in dlc you know they already have a big tornado level dlc planned for the game so i'm hoping that we'll get a little bit more of that um but historically i mean they've they've done everything from a um a prequel to a you know pseudo sequel um epilogue right so it could go either direction they could take the story forward or they could pull it back but i'd i'd probably guess we're getting we're we're not going to revisit the you know, origin and the the colliding of the worlds. We're probably going to, you know, for again, we're deep in spoiler territory. We're probably going to be reuniting, um, you know, Kevis and Agnes uh, again, right? Get getting those characters back together. If in the story DLC would be my guess, right? Mia and Noah will meet again uh, when we when we eventually hit the DLC in a year or so. Yeah, I, I think so too. I, I also want an explanation about Rex after that yeah. one scene. <laughs> yeah, I'm the, not sure. But... The one scene at the end, oh, God, where Rex is apparently, um, he's got babies with three different characters from Xenoblade 2. Like, <laughs> what was that about? I don't know. They I'm kept all sure. the goofy stuff out of this except for that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't, yeah, I can't tell you. But, you know, one thing that I, I will say is, like, all of those critiques being what they are, fair, they're all fair, right? My my thing was I never really cared about that origin and, and um, you know, the colliding of the worlds and all of that didn't really matter to me because that wasn't what the story was that I was, you know, following the one that I cared about, right, which was the relationship between these six characters, and their growth, right, how they learn to like care about each other and come together in ways that like, they've never done before. Yeah, that's, that's totally fair. I was playing it. um, Looking for how does this extend this broader story that was Xenoblade one, two, and now three. And I yeah. think that part is unsatisfying, but you're right. Just from if at a character level and not at like a global level, the story was good. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think, I think, um, I, I will, 
I will guess that we are going to see all of the characters from Xenoblade Chronicles 1 and 2 and 3 in the DLC, right? It's pr- They're all going to be working together to get everyone together again. Uh, we'll probably see Rex. We'll get, you know, um, good old Zeke will be back in, in tow. We'll see... Uh, shulk and and charla like all of that's going to happen again i'm sure in the in the next dlc but um yeah i mean you know i'm i hope we get more of those answers i did think that was that there was some interesting stuff there that had they had more time maybe they'd have explored deeper but again at the end of the day i thought that the ending was really successful like it stuck the landing for me as far as you know the relationship between the characters, the the growth of Noah and Mio, um, you know, they're coming together and then the separation and like they're, you know, the fact that they broke the cycle, right? Which was really the, the whole premise is like, let's just, we need to break this cycle. We need to, you know, restore things to what they are. Um, and they did, right? And, and so to me, that was satisfying. Um, we got the conclusion that I wanted, I guess. Yeah, I think the... I think this ending here, this, uh, you know, Noah and Mio deciding to split was the more mature ending. Uh, I think, mm-hmm. I think you're right. That it was a much more um, satisfying ending than, than maybe the other two, the other two had yeah. fine endings too, but this one from a character level, I thought it was, it was done really well. I almost wish though that you had a choice there at the end mm-hmm. and like you could choose or which one do you want to do? Do you want to, take the end path or this new yeah. Noah path. I think that would have been a cool look at it. The, pro- the, yeah, the issue I have with that is it would have just, it would have felt disingenuous to everything that they've been working towards, right? Like their whole thing was giving everyone a chance, right? It was destroying this, this cycle. Right. And it sounds like as the, as long as the two worlds were together, right it would always be stuck in this perpetual state of, you know, suspended animation, if you will. Yeah. So I don't know. I, you know, we'll see where they go next, but, you know, story-wise, I think it's really cool the way that the the setting plays into that, right? Like you said, you know, the two worlds coming together, you know, at the end they separate again, but the, the merging of the worlds, you know, it, it's clear very early on, right? Without even knowing, you know, having played the first two games that, that, you know, these two nations are very distinct from each other, right? If you've played the other two games, it becomes very apparent, like, which games they represent, therefore which worlds each, um, you know, faction is is representative of. Um, but it wasn't until I was doing some exploring in, like, Chapter 4 or something that, like, I was really struck by the connection because there's this location um, in, like, the second region that you go to that I... I, I it's like the one place in Xenoblade Chronicles one that sticks out to me as memorable. And I, th- I believe it's on the Mechonis's hand. It's one of the fingers of the Mechonis. Oh, the digits. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You climb this really tall tower, right? Which is a, a finger of the Titan from Xenoblade Chronicles one. Right. And there's this moment in Xenoblade Chronicles one where you have to go up and it's got all these like um, steel you know, uh, steel walkways and uh, ladders, right? And you're climbing forever, right? It feels like two, three minutes before you get to the top. And then you get to the top and you go out to the end of the digit and you're overlooking the entire region, right? And I was climbing this area in the, up this hill um, in Xenoblade Chronicles 3 and all of a sudden you're 
on these giant steel ladders. You get off on a platform, move to the left a little bit, go up another giant steel ladder, get off, you're on a bunch of steel walkways. Uh, you go out to the end, you're on the edge of a finger overlooking you know, the second region of the game. And it's the, it's, you know, the region below it is not the region, right, from Xenoblade Chronicles 1. It's a merging of both worlds, right? And so you act, there are landmarks from both games that you can encounter. And um, it was really cool in that moment to see how they actually went, you know, so far as to uh, bring you know, some of the secret locations and landmarks from Xenoblade Chronicles 1 and 2 into 3 and kind of merge them and hide them within this new uh, setting, these new areas. Yeah, discovering those places, those holdovers from the previous games was probably the most satisfying thing about exploration in this game for me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because like finding items and stuff, you're not like none of that stuff was really all that important. Like as you suit up your character, you don't really need... Uh, items in a traditional JRPG sense. Um, so it wasn't about that. It wasn't about finding money because by the time you know, you're know you purchasing things, you have plenty of money. But finding these locations and that little bit of fan service, like I don't mean fan service as a, as a, a pejorative thing here. I thought it was really, really nicely done how they named some of the places that reappeared. Um, yeah. I think the, the place that struck me the most was... Uh, I'm going to butcher the name here. I can't remember the name of it, but the, the sea, the Uranian, not Uranian. I can't remember the name of the sea, but the sea from the first Xenoblade game um, around um, the, the high Intia's castle yeah. or shopping mall, whatever it was, you know, when that reappears in Xenoblade three, I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, this it's, it's a huge sea again, um, but they give you a little bit better way to get around it with this boat. Yeah, it was really cool. I mean, I think that the you know this game is very satisfying for people that have played the first two. It does a lot. It has a lot of callbacks and, like you said, fan service and things that are just meant to kind of be nods to the previous games. It's intimately tied narrative-wise, as we've already talked about, to stuff that happened in those games. Um, but at the same time, it works as a standalone experience. I mean, I don't feel like you have to know, you know, uh, who. Uh, Melia and Nia are um, in order to, uh, you know, to get what the queens are doing and why they matter, right? Like that—that's not crucial to understanding the game or to you know getting enjoyment out of it. They're still enjoyable characters, anyways. Um, did you go back and get them um, after completing the game? Did you unlock their uh, their um, classes? No, I haven't. I haven't been back to the game since I, so, I rolled the credits on it. Yeah, so I recommend you do that because they have they actually have classes you can unlock, and they have really long quest chains associated with them. That um, I think that might be where some of what you're. I haven't f- done those quest chains yet. I've just unlocked them, but to upgrade them to level twenty, you have to actually take them around the world and um, experience different locations with them. And I think that's where a lot of the you know, fill in of some of the missing information that you're hoping to find might be located, which, you know, I know that's not like, why is that tucked away in, in post game stuff? And I, I might be wrong on this, but I, it seems to me that that's probably what, where you'll get some of those answers. I'll have to go back. I was, I want to come back to this in just a second, maybe towards the end of the podcast, but I was so ready to be done with this game and play just something very different that I was like, all right, credits. I'm, I'm done for a while. 
But I want to come back to something you said a minute ago, because you actually hit on the thing that I'm, I'm writing about right now for NintendoWatcher.com. This game is, like we talked about at the beginning, um, the most approachable of the games, um, a really good standalone entry into the franchise that you don't have to play the previous games. Mm-hmm. So all that said, I, I totally agree. But I think it's the worst one to start with. I think... You know, the first yeah. two are happening um, at the same time chronologically. So they're they're really like like sister games. But this one, I think with the reveals that you get with the, um, you know, like like when the game doesn't tell you that one thing is from a previous game, but it just kind of looks like it um, or just gives you those hints at how it's connected. I think those those were super fulfilling parts of the game for me that if you play this game first and you're like, man, I really like Xenoblade. I want to go back to the previous game. I don't right. think you would enjoy, you know, the previous games or, or appreciate this one the way that um, I think everybody should. Yeah. I think, I mean, to that that's fair. Like it sucks being like, you know, play the first two games, you know, play two, you know, 60 to a hundred hour games <laughs> before you play Xenoblade Chronicles three. But like, my reasoning for that would be you'll have a hard time going back from a gameplay perspective to the previous two games um, if you if you start with three. That's the thing to me that would be the biggest issue. I think you could get past the narrative connections and things like that. Like some people love spoilers. They like to know how things end and they get more enjoyment out of the rest of the journey knowing how it's going to end, right? Like there's an audience for that. But going back to a worse version of a combat system or uh you know a a you know a less interesting you know world design or whatever it might be is is a harder pull for certain people yeah that's fair i mean we talked about it earlier but this game fixed so many of the issues even with like the definitive edition for uh, Mm -hmm. the first scene of play game it's hard to go back i imagine i mean it's hard for me to go back even before i played this game yeah, I mean, you know, all that said, right? You know, we've both got issues with it. I think I may be a little higher on it than you are, um, but I think that we're we can both agree that, like, you know, this is kind of a must-play if you like the genre, right? Like, it's really difficult to to say if you enjoy JRPGs, you 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 don't need to play this game, right? If you own a Switch, you like JRPGs. I feel like this is kind of a must. Yeah, absolutely. I think most of my gripes come from the uh, narrative perspective, and it's more mm-hmm. about the series than the individual installment. Um, absolutely. Yeah, I think if you like JRPGs, you're going to love this game. So, I mean, we've talked about the gameplay. We've talked the setting, the music, the sound design, gone over some story spoilers. You know, any last minute, you know, uh, things you want to cover anything else you want to say about the game before we kind of wrap this and talk about what we're playing it's this is not an original point um but i think it it just bears repeating here the one of the best things about all of the xenoblade games is the um like how the developers handle scale Mm -hmm. you are a tiny character in a gigantic like a literal gigantic world yeah um, and, and they just do scale really well. Like you, you mentioned earlier, climbing to the top of the, um, the 
McConaughey's finger. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes several minutes to do it. Um, it's, it's like that for, you know, throughout all the games in these different locations, it takes time to get from one space to another. It's so much so that towards the end of the game, they give you that boat so that you can get around the, the sea a little faster. But I think that that scale, um, really puts the game into perspective and it ties it back to the the big thematic um through lines in all of the games that you're just this tiny speck in you know this this huge um cosmological um uh, story that you're, you're pretty insignificant and you have to um just sort of come to terms with that. Like this game, especially like it was all about coming to terms with how small you are, how insignificant you are, how, you know, you can't stop a, a cycle. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the whole story is about the characters realizing that they are bigger than they think they are and they can stop the cycle. So I just think that the sense of scale and how that plays into the narrative more generally is, is really powerful with all the games, but especially this one, they did such a great job with it. Yeah, I I agree. I think that, you know, these games have always tried to make you feel small, have always, you know, leaned heavily into, um, you know, oversized, uh, you know, world maps with, you know, way too much to see, Um, you know, sometimes at the detriment of feeling a little empty at times. I think this one still suffers from that a little bit, but the narrative allows it to make a little more sense for why it is the way that it is. And, and, um, yeah, as you said, you know, the game does a really good job of, of slowly revealing to you, you know, the impact that someone who is so insignificant can still have, right, on, on you know, the larger picture. Um, and it does this both mechanically and through narrative, right? Just the addition of, like you said, the boat at the end, but also the standard traversal moves that you get, um, you know, the zip lining and the climbing of mountains and stuff like that. Like all of these things that they unlock throughout the game to make you feel um, like you progress through the world easier. Everything becomes simpler and you become more capable of, you know, navigating this world that seems incredibly overwhelming in the first couple of hours. I think that that's something that both mechanically and narratively, it really sticks the landing on. That was a really elegant point. I just have to say that I hate those sort of uh, gimmick mechanics, like the breath of the wild um, being able just to climb any, any hill face yep. and glide around spoiled me forever for stuff like that. <laughs> Look, I'll take it over Zero Day Chronicles 2 um, gating me behind leveling up certain, uh, you know, gotcha characters that I haven't unlocked yet. So Yeah, yeah, that was the worst. All right, for you, uh, last thoughts. Um, you know, I think I've covered most of what, you know, there is to say, except that um, I think it's, I think they've done a really good job here. Um, I'm excited that this narrative has pretty much wrapped because I think that the, the fact that this game took a more sort of mature tone, um, you know, compared to some of the previous entries, um, you know, and that's, you know, I, I use mature lightly. It's not, it's by no means like a, a really heavy mature game, but um, it definitely leans into some mature themes that the other games avoided or didn't really engage with very much. And, now that they can kind of unshackle themselves from um, the the story they started in Xenoblade Chronicles 1, 
I think that what comes next could be really uh, something really special. I'm, I'm actually, you know, it seems weird to end a review of Xenoblade Chronicles 3 saying, I hope Xenoblade Chronicles 4 is even better. Um, but I do think that um, we might we might get something really cool uh, when they get their next shot at it, which it sounds like they're absolutely going to get. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Um, it's, it's such a, a fun game. And even despite the issues that we've had with all, all three of the games in the, the trilogy right now, it says something that we're both like, all right, when's the next one coming out? Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk our game recommendations of the week. And we're back. So, Matthew, um, when you had time away from this 150-hour-long quest, what were you playing? So, I recently, as of uh, three days ago, uh, or four days ago as of this record, uh, got a hold of a Nintendo Switch OLED Splatoon 3 edition. Oh, that's right. How do you like it? I'm loving it. I'm loving the screen. I think the OLED is... Um, really, really uh, making a case for you know upping my um, handheld time with the Switch. Um, the you know I, I don't it might just be the texturing on the Joy Cons. I don't think they're any different than normal Joy Cons, but they just feel good having fresh Joy Cons. Um, the, the this is a slick looking machine, um, but the beauty of it was I I got this on Friday. Um, the day before the Splatoon 3 uh, global you know, Splatfest uh, released. And I spent a good six or so hours on Saturday, the, the only really gaming time I've had since finishing Xenoblade uh, uh, like a, two weeks ago or so. Um, and I just, you know, I blocked off some time that day and I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this Splatfest, I'm going to check it out. And I had an absolute blast playing splatoon 3 so it's not so much a game recommendation of the week as it is um if you are on the fence with splatoon 3 if you didn't get a chance to check out the Splatfest this last weekend um i i came away from that experience even more jazzed about this game than i was before um it it was already a day one purchase for me but i it is now a a you know unreserved recommendation um, for anyone who's even remotely interested, I think uh, this is the one that, that is going to really break through, um, and we're going to see a lot of people getting into Splatoon in the next couple weeks. So uh, keep an eye out for that. comes out a week from uh, Friday, right? I think this episode's going to come out maybe Wednesday or Thursday, and so a week from Friday, uh, we're, we're looking at Splatoon 3. So keep that on your radar. And don't necessarily pre-order it. I don't really... Uh, you know, I don't really advocate for pre-orders unless you absolutely know that you're not you're not going to be disappointed, which is just not the case for most people. So, don't necessarily pre-order it. Wait for reviews. You know, to see what someone you trust says about it. But uh, keep it on your radar. It's it's going to be a good time. I'm I can feel confident saying that. Yeah, we'll have to do some live streams of that when it comes out. That'll be fun. Yeah, we should. I really got to get you playing it because I'm going to need some 
some people to you know build up a team with. Got to got to get into that uh, you know ranked play. Yeah, definitely. I I liked Xeno, uh, Xenoblade. I liked um, the second one, but I, I just never really got into the competitive space. So I'm I'm really excited to start this one with everybody else. I was kind of late to the last one. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, so what about you? What have you been up to? So I I wanted to play something totally different um, after. Um, spending some time, a good chunk of time with Xenoblade 3. So I picked up this game um, on the App Store. It was on sale. It was like $2, and I had some coins saved up, so it was um, I got it for free, mm-hmm. which is just an awesome feature for the eShop. If you're you're buying um, games, even physical games, you can you know redeem the the code and get gets points back for your um, your eShop. But I bought this game called Bit Orchard Animal Valley okay it's it's like a stardew valley um but super super um um, reduced in scale and much more simplistic it's got an 8-bit um like like grayscale game boy aesthetic that i really really like it's i just think it was it was so fun to carry on a handheld and play a game that looked like a game boy game like an old school game boy game that's pretty cool um it's not a great game (laughs) let me say that all right it's not a great game at all. It's a little grindy at first when you're trying to, you know, plant your apples and stuff. But it's it's sort of mindless, and that's exactly what I was looking for um, after nice. Xenoblade. Good, good game to tune out to, just uh, unwind at the end of the day. That's it. But since then, and this is my real recommendation, since then I can't stay away from uh, JRPG for very long. I'm I'm pretty much <laughs> always playing one, even if it's you know just in rotation with a, a couple of other games that I'm actually playing. But I decided to pick up um, and play Dragon Quest 2. That's oh, the nice. Luminaries of the Legendary line. I thought that I beat this game a long time ago, and maybe I did, but I haven't beaten on my Switch. So I, I powered it up and realized I was only like 10 um, levels in. So I've been going back and playing through it and I'm actually almost at the very end now. I'm collecting the last little thing. And this game, if you've never played a, an early Dragon Quest game before, the first three are available um, on the eShop. And they're pretty cheap, typically. But if you're um, sort of shying away from Dragon Quest, those first few entries, because they're so grindy, two is not nearly as grindy as one and three. Um, and it feels <laughs> like the story um, has a a lot more story points um, and plot points that sort of propel you along. So it doesn't feel like you're spending forever playing this game. I've, I'm really enjoying it and enjoying it a lot more than I remember. I didn't remember liking this game very much the first time I played yeah. it. Yeah. I played through one and two um, last year, actually shortly before the announcement of the, um, the three remake, the 2d uh, HD remake of three. Um, so I haven't played three yet, but I actually, I did really enjoy my time with two. I thought it was a, a big step up from one um and just a fun fun breezy experience didn't didn't take too long uh quite an enjoyable experience yeah and it does the the pokemon um blue and red thing where you get to go back to the the land from uh, dragon quest one after you get a few right. hours in so it, it's really cool you get to experience like a much much bigger world um, i think the monster designs are more interesting and not quite as grindy like i said yeah absolutely absolutely um, yeah, I mean, I, I would, I second that recommendation. I had a real good time with it last year and, uh, if you've never played it, um, it's cheap. You pick it up for a handful of bucks on the eShop and, uh, give it a shot. Yeah, definitely worth it's your time. It's pretty regularly too. 
Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. All right. With that, we'll leave it there. Matthew, good talking to you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. See you again next week. See you next week.